Is it ethical to give people a diet that sends the number one causal risk factor for atherogenesis through the roof as the ketogenic diet does to so many people? I don't think it could pass an ethics board. Oh, you're going to put them on a diet that puts you into what's called a malignant ApoB level associated with FH? I'm sorry, that's not ethical. We can't let you do that to a patient. It's never going to happen. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Thomas Dayspring for part three of our lipid series. In part one, we focus on how our body transports lipids, fats and cholesterol, and what goes wrong causing cholesterol to end up in the artery wall. In part two, we covered the important test to measure your risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Tom specifically emphasized three important tests, ApoB and triglycerides, at least yearly, and LP little a once per lifetime. In today's episode, we focus on the interventions that can lower risk. An important note here is that when it comes to interventions, Tom's specialty is pharmacotherapy, the different classes of drugs that can help optimize lipids and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk. Hence, this is what we focused on. However, it absolutely goes without saying that lifestyle, particularly nutrition, can play an enormous role in optimizing lipids. Something Tom and I are aligned on is that when it comes to primary prevention, people without a history of cardiovascular disease. Lifestyle should really be the first point of call. If you recall my episode with Dr. David Jenkins, his portfolio diet, which is high fiber and low saturated fat, has been shown to reduce LDL cholesterol by approximately 30%, a similar reduction to what we see with low intensity statins. For many people, dietary changes will be enough to optimize their lipids. For others, however, due to genetic differences, nutrition plus pharmacotherapy may be needed. Certainly for secondary prevention, when the target level of ApoB or LDL cholesterol is much lower, more people will need assistance from pharmacotherapy. Not everyone, but many. And even in this context, those who make changes to their diet may be able to use lower doses of lipid-lowering drugs, thus reducing the likelihood of adverse effects. Point being, this doesn't have to be an either or type scenario. We should all be trying to eat a healthy diet and some of us might require pharmacotherapy if we really wanna optimize our longevity. As a reminder for the visually inclined, be sure to check this episode out on the Proof YouTube channel where we added illustrations throughout the conversation to help explain some of the concepts. And don't forget to register for the zero cost lipid series summary PDF at theproof.com forward slash lipid series. That's theproof.com forward slash lipid series. This will contain the key learnings from the three parts of the series. With that, please enjoy part three of the lipid series with Dr. Thomas Dayspring. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. 
The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Welcome back, Tom. Great to be doing this. Yeah, I guess we're going to chat more about lipids. Yes, we are. And... uh, I think this might push us into five, six, or, or seven hours of recording this week. So I really, um, I'm super grateful for for your time and, and and doing this with us. We've we've now discussed how our body transports lipids, um, what goes wrong when cholesterol is deposited into the artery wall, and how to assess our risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And then in this part of the series, we're going to move on to interventions. So discussing the evidence that we have to support a, a variety of, of different interventions to optimize our lipids and, and lower our risk of this disease. I'd love to start here with a bit of history for people. Uh, my understanding is that cardiovascular mortality peaked somewhere around the, the 1950s. And I'm interested in, if we sort of go back in time and look over the last 70 years, what what are the major medical advancements that have helped reduce cardiovascular disease mortality over that time? You know, it started to go down when we started to be able to treat some of the certain causal risk factors. And you're right, in the 1950s, remember Dwight Eisenhower, our president, had a couple of heart attacks, FDR before him. So uh, it was not good. 
And, and look, I entered med school 68 to 72. We had no effective treatments for atherosclerotic heart disease. Blood pressure pills were starting to be invented and come on the blood uh, on the market at that time. So the first cardiovascular risk factor we made some inroads on was blood pressure. But that didn't really show a lot of sudden decline in uh, uh, heart-related deaths for a long while, mostly because those initial blood pressure drugs were uh, not the greatest. They were poorly tolerated, not complied with, but it was at least a, a start to trying to reduce cardiovascular disease. Where you finally saw the curve start to drop where, hey, all of a sudden there are less cardiovascular deaths, were in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And it's almost a total, and it happened uh, in men before it, uh, we saw any signal in women. And that virtually pinpoints to when statins came on the market. So that shows that, hey, men got statins, women didn't, and it started to work. Because trust me, in 1987, when statins got on the market, men didn't suddenly stop smoking. We didn't have perfect blood pressure control in 1987. But for virtually the first time ever, we had serious reductions in LDL cholesterol, and the benefits started to show up. Now, look, that was in the mid-1980s is when cardiovascular care started to improve also. Coronary care units were becoming commonplace. Bypasses came in in the 1970s, became standard in the 1980s. Stents were invented. But we know subsequent to that, those interventions really don't reduce uh, uh, mortality or uh, a lot of endpoints. But the lipid management did. And it's sort of, you know, about 10 years later, women started to catch up. So it finally dawned on people, women can get cardiovascular care too. And uh, it's uh, gone down, down, down until just lately, I think it's leveled and frightfully starting to go up a little bit. And what that's all about, uh, who knows? But it was really statins that moved atherosclerotic heart disease. Tom, what do you think caused an increase in cardiovascular disease mortality up to say the 1950s or, or 60s or were we just getting better at diagnosing it were people living longer and therefore reaching an age where this was becoming an issue or was there a change in the environment oh look uh, i think over you know that time period uh, uh, we were becoming a little more sedentary as a population or fast food came into the world, the post-World War II and nutrition became more and more horrendous. Smoking skyrocketed after, during World War II and after World War II. So those were the reasons why atherosclerotic heart disease was way more nightmarish then than it is now, even though today it's still the leading cause of death. So as good as we've done, we got a lot more work to do. So it's multifactorial. I guess where I'm I'm trying to to explore here, where I'm trying to get is, I think there's this idea out there that some people have this that have this idea anyway that we've become a, a kind of drug dependent society. If we lived the perfect lifestyle right now, would atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease? I mean, clearly it would still exist. We've covered territory where certain people have genetic mutations. If you have a Neiman Pick C1 like one or some sort of PCSK9 uh, mutation that's causing you to have super high ApoB levels, then no matter what you do with your lifestyle, you're going to be at higher risk of this disease. But if we push those people to the side, 
is this a a lifestyle disease? If we were to shift back to a very healthy lifestyle, would we largely see this go away, or is sort of suboptimal um, lipids and atherosclerosis, I guess, a kind of quote unquote uh, flaw in our and I'm uh, using inverted commas, our, our design, I mean, evolution is, is primarily selecting for reproduction, not longevity per se. How do you kind of reconcile all of that? Well, listen, if there was widespread improvement in nutrition and lifestyle, there would certainly be a lot less many chronic diseases, including atherosclerotic heart disease. But by no means would, can you eliminate this with lifestyle alone. We're coming to the realization where we know we have to have basically physiologic ApoB levels like children do. Uh, by the time people are in the adult range with serious lipid abnormalities, they're so far away from where they have to be. You're going to need pharmacologic care to ever eliminate this disease. And it can be eliminated if we make ApoB drop to, you know, under 15 adults. And that's just not going to happen in a ton of people with lifestyle alone. So um, everybody's for lifestyle. It's a part of the equation, but by no means could that ever wipe out atherosclerotic heart disease currently, because we just have to get back to uh, the type of not having the atherogenic lipoprotein concentrations that haven't been seen in a long time, maybe pre-industrial world. So when we we think about the different drug classes that are available today in 2023 that can can lower ApoB levels, um, I think this brings us back to this concept that we've discussed a few times here that the the sort of ApoB in circulation and I'll summarize this and I'll probably get some things wrong so feel free to to jump in and, and correct me um, but the ApoB that's in circulation is primarily a product of cholesterol absorption in the intestine and then cholesterol synthesis in the liver so would I be right in saying that broadly we can separate the the sort of available drugs into two buckets those that act on absorption and then those which reduce cholesterol synthesis in the liver or increase uptake in the liver by upregulating up receptors? No, those are just two partial pieces of the puzzle. We, we haven't dwelt a lot on triglycerides. If for whatever reason you have elevated triglycerides, it's going to significantly prolong the plasma residence time of ApoB particles. Now, that has nothing to do with the absorption or synthesis of cholesterol. So if you've got a this metabolic state where triglycerides are getting into your lipoproteins, that's another factor that would have to be addressed in those people. And what it all ultimately is going to come down to is we have, if we're going to achieve the type of ApoB uh, concentrations that we need, regardless of whether you're over-synthesizing, under-synthesizing, we're going to have to clear ApoB particles out of plasma. And that pretty much comes down to your LDL receptors. So now LDL receptors can have genetic issues with them. You make LDL receptors, but they're dysfunctional or not functional at all. So you can't clear as readily or at all ApoB particles. So that's another factor that comes into play. But at the end of the day, Whatever the etiology of your increased ApoB, hyperabsorption, hypersynthesis, hypertriglyceridemia, LDL receptor defects, you, we are, if we're going to get those ApoB levels to where they have to be, 
we have to induce LDL receptor mediated clearance of the ApoB particles. And every single drug right now that has positive outcome data, I'm talking lipid modulating drugs, uh, have done it by improving LDL receptor mediated clearance. The drugs that don't work on LDL receptors to lower ApoB have not worked. Fibrates, niacin are the two best examples there. So uh, it's much of the therapeutic discussion is going to be how do we give a patient more LDL receptors? And once we give them more LDL receptors, can we prolong the res cellular residence time of LDL receptors? Can we extend LDL receptor life? Mm -hmm. Okay, so perhaps we can we can step through some of the the, the common drugs that are available and we can talk about where they're kind of acting and how they're affecting LDL receptor number. Yeah, it's not a long list. So let's start with the first drug that ever produced a empowered, randomized, blinded, out cardiovascular outcome trial. Here's a drug, it lowers LDL cholesterol and of course ApoB. And we gave it to thousands of people, we followed them up and there were less heart attacks in the drug group than there were in the placebo group. And the first drug that did that is a drug we barely use anymore, but it is still available. They're called bile acid sequestrants, bile acid rosin, some people cause them. They're non-systemic drugs. You swallow them, and what they do in your intestine, they bind to bile acids. And because the bile acids are bound to them, they get excreted fecally. Normally, over 90% of our bile acids that make it down to the intestine are reabsorbed at the distal ileum and brought back into the bloodstream, returned to the liver, and the liver reuses them. If you excrete bile acids and they don't get reabsorbed and go back to the liver, the liver says, so what? I'll just make new bile acids. And the liver makes new bile acids by using up its pool of cholesterol. And if the liver starts depleting its pool of cholesterol to make bile acids, where is the liver going to get more cholesterol? It upregulates LDL receptors, which grabs ApoB particles, which are carrying a lot of cholesterol and pulls them back into the liver. So bile acid sequestrants. The reason they're not used is they're very hard to take. They're either a powder or a ton of pills. They can bind you up. They cause constipation. The early ones interfered with the absorption of other drugs, so you had precise timing of when you had to take them. So it was not an easy drug to give, but it was the first. And not only did it work, it we knew it worked through an LDL receptor. So that gave people who chase drugs, hey, let's find more drugs that work through the LDL receptor because uh, they might uh, also work. The bioelasticity questions, although they worked, their ability to lower LDL cholesterol is not very high in ApoB. So they were weak on that, but it just goes to show you that any ApoB lowering done through LDL receptor upregulation uh, has worked. There's one rare exception. Maybe we'll discuss that later on, but everyone since 1984 and the one that failed was 1959. So it's an interesting story when we get to some of the markers I know you're going to discuss. So the second drug that came along uh, that reduced 
all sorts of cardiovascular endpoints and obviously reduce the LDL cholesterol and ApoB. And I'll tell you how, but through an LDL receptor related mechanism was of course the statin class of drugs. Now they were researched for a long time. And the first one commercially came on the market by Merck. It was uh, Mevacor. Lovastatin was the generic name. 1987. Now, We'll talk about it in a moment. The first outcome data showing that statins really do reduce heart attacks, blah, 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 didn't come till 1994. So between 1997 or 1987 and 1994, if you were a statin user, you were doing it on good faith because you knew, hey, it lowers LDL cholesterol like a bile acid sequestration, but it lowers it a lot more. So it'll probably work also. So uh, along came the statins. And the statins, when they came on, they you know, had several doses. Typically, when they first came on, you started with a small dose. That didn't get you where you want to go. You kept titrating the dose until you either maxed out on the statin or you achieved whatever LDL metric you were looking for. Every statin has sort of done that as they came along. They all came on the market with several doses. But there's an, remember, here's how statins work. Statins inhibit the third step of that 37-step cholesterol synthesis chain, but it's the major step. It's what we call the rate-limiting step. So if you can interfere with the production of what's called mevalonic acid, you really shut down all the after-chain sterols and things that pop up. And that's where statins work on the third step, and they reduce that. Now, when they reduce the synthesis of cholesterol and... Re Although every tissue in your body is synthesizing cholesterol, the liver is a major site and the liver becomes the crucial organ for lipid management because it's the organ capable of most upregulating the most LDL receptors to clear ApoB particles. So if statins start inhibiting cholesterol synthesis in the liver, you deplete the hepatic pool of cholesterol. The liver needs cholesterol. There are nuclear transcription factors that sense the cholesterol deficit in the liver, and they go into the nucleus and the genes produce the DNA and RNA where the endoplasmic reticulum starts uh, regulating uh, uh, many mechanisms that control cholesterol, including manufacturing of the LDL receptor. The LDL receptor moves from where it's made to the surface of the cell, grabs the first ApoB particle it sees, pulls it into the liver. Now, as it gets pulled in, it's both the LDL receptor and it's binding to the LDL particle that gets pulled in. And it goes in a little subcellular compartment called a um, lysosome. And the lysosome carries enzymes that can start destroying those things. But it's so cool. The uh, enzymes in the lysosome destroy the LDL particle, the ApoB, changes it to amino acids, changes the cholesterol to fatty acids and free cholesterol, breaks down the triglycerides into fatty acids. But interestingly, the LDL receptor is often spared and not digested so it can recycle to the surface of the liver and use again. And LDL receptors recycle numerous times over like a two-day period. If every, unless they're being catabolized, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But for the most part, LDL receptors have this much half-life because they recycle. It would be great if we could extend that half-life. It would be terrible if it had a short half-life because then you're not going to have as many LDL receptors. So that's how statins work. They pull in the ApoB particles. The LDL receptor goes back and pulls out more. 
So you have to deplete the pool of cholesterol by synthesis inhibition. But here's what we now know. And you, you know, you can get anywhere from 20 to, depending which statin and dose you use, up to a 50% reduction in LDL cholesterol. But almost all of the LDL receptor, the LDL cholesterol or ApoB reduction comes with the baby, the starter dose of the statin, the lowest dose of the statin. And then if you didn't get to goal, we were taught titrated, double the dose, then you triple the dose, then you quadruple the dose, and by that time you're out of that dose of the, the statin. But every time you do the second to third to fourth titration, you get seven, maximum 8% additional lowering of ApoB or LDL cholesterol. So the most bang for the buck with statins is with the baby dose. And yet, if you need a little bit more, and in the early 80s and 90s, we had nothing else but statins. We weren't going to add bile acid sequestrants to it because nobody would take uh, that particular drug. So that wasn't helpful as an add-on to statins, although it could be used if you really needed to. So understand the small doses of statin are great, but you do get a little bit more each uh, step. And when you didn't have anything else, that's what you had to do. You had to keep titrating statins. And of course, statin side effects, although in really close trials where you look at it are like next to none, maybe 5% get muscle aches and nothing else. In the real world, upwards of 20%, 25% of people come back complaining of something if you put them on the statin. And one thing doctors know, you can pull out the textbook and say, oh no, you, this side effect has nothing to do with the statins. It's not known to occur. Even the muscle aches, you got muscle aches, but it's not the statin. Uh, people will never believe you. If a person gets fixated that their side effect is related to a drug, it's almost an act in futility trying to twist arms to get them to use that drug. Unless maybe they've had two heart attacks already and they know they're on their last legs. So that is a downside to lipid drugs with side effects. And you can argue all day long, the, the super close investigatory trials show no side effects with statins, but the real world is for whatever reason, and it's many, including nocebo effects, is that the uh, statin is problematic. And a number of people where you just can't use the darn statin or you go back to a lower dose. So uh, that is the statins. And Mevacor was the first. The second was another Merck drug, Simvastatin. And it was more potent than... Uh, the lovastatin, the Mevacor. So most people abandoned Mevacor and switched over to Simvastatin. And in 1994, the first randomized blind uh, clinical trial that shows, oh my God, statins work, was using Simvastatin. It was sold as a branded drug called Zocor in those days. And it was called the uh, 4S trial, Scandina Scandinavian Survival, Simvastatin Scandinavian Survival Trial. There were 4Ss in there somehow. Uh, and who did they enroll in that study? When uh, manufacturers invent a drug they think is going to work, they give it usually to nightmares. Because, again, I think I said it yesterday, if the drug doesn't work in a nightmare, it's not going to work in a, a less severe at-risk person. So they rounded up Swedes whose LDL cholesterol was around 190 who already had a heart attack. First of all, if your LDLC is 190, today you virtually qualify. You have FH, familial hypercholesterolemia. So these were really sick Scandinavian folks. And they gave them simvastatin. And bingo, there was reduction of all the MACE, major adverse cardiovascular endpoints in that trial. 
So bingo, we finally had statin outcome trial. And the people who were not going to use statins until they got outcome data now had no excuses not to use at least simvastatin. Nevacor, two years later, went on to uh, reduce events in a primary prevention trial. But simvastatin was the first. Very soon after simvastatin was the first primary prevention trial ever done with a statin. The statin used was pravastatin, sold back then as pravacol, and it was uh, uh, done in Scotland. Wascops, West of Scotland, uh, coronary outcome uh, prevention trial. But what Scots did they wind up? They The baseline LDL cholesterol was again around 180 to 190. So they basically rounded up Scottish farmers who had familial hypercholesterolemia and were eating haggis all day long. So they had nightmare lipid but they're high risk, but they not have, most of them had not yet had their first heart attack. So so-called primary prevention. And lo and behold, Pravacol worked, reduced all the endpoints. And interesting because Pravastatin as a statin is not as potent as Simvastatin. So you, you didn't get quite the type of LDL cholesterol reduction you got with Simvastatin in the 4S trial. But nonetheless, Pravastatin worked. And it was the first statin to get a primary prevention indication from the FDA. So... Uh, then that Mevacor trial rolled in. It was a primary prevention trial, but the people had low HDL cholesterol, but was otherwise thought to be okay, and it worked. And the, finally, then the Bristol-Myers people, squid, uh, squid people, said, we're going to do a secondary prevention trial with Pravastatin, because then we'll be the one drug that has primary and secondary outcome. And they did something called the CARE trial. And it was in the United States, up in the Boston area. And they enrolled people who had atherosclerotic heart disease, a coronary event, and they randomized them to pravastatin, pravacol, 40 milligrams versus placebo, and it worked. And more, and it does, didn't lower LDL cholesterol as much as simvastatin did in the 4S trial, but the outcome reduction was quite good. So now we had a lot of statin outcome data. Subsequent to that, newer statins were invented. And they were invented because they were designed to more potently inhibit HMG-CoA reductase, that enzyme that causes cholesterol synthesis. For the purists of the world, very interesting, those first statins, which were lovastatin, simvastatin, and pravastatin, they're all derivatives of yeast, just like red rice yeast or that people use over the counter. It's not an improved drug right now, but they're as natural as people. Oh, I will only use a natural drug. Well, those three statins are as about as natural as you can get. They're just distillates of yeast and they bind to HMG co-reductase and they inhibit it. But then along came the great chemists who work in the pharmaceutical industry, and they engineered the structure of the HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, and out came atorvastatin. And atorvastatin rapidly shown to be the most potent uh, LDL ApoB-lowering drug that was on the market at that time. I should, for thoroughness sake, mention another one came out pr produced by Novartis called Fluvistatin, less skull brand name, very weak. It came on the market. Very few people used it because it didn't even compare to the other statins. And it took them a long time. And they did a real tiny outcome trial, but it did work ultimately. But it never was a player among the statins. So atorvastatin came next. 
Denver and uh, ultimately atorvastatin produced several clinical trials. It was the first statin to show it could reduce stroke, uh, a, a trial design with stroke as the primary endpoint. So the data just kept coming in and in and in. No statin trial failed uh, to uh, reduce events, but hey, we got to get more and more and more potent statins. So uh, I believe it was Bayer brought to uh, the market uh, Cerevastatin. I believe it was sold to, as a brand name Baycol. And they came out with a couple of doses, but it wasn't comparing. So they developed a really high dose of it, which all of a sudden was as potent as atorvastatin. In love, but it's, <laughs> they got into it's a dose that should have never been brought to the market because, you know, Stand toxicity is pretty much related to dose. When you start really getting up to the super high doses, which were not initially approved by the FDA, you're asking for trouble. So Baycol knew, though, we had to get a, a super duper statin. So they pushed Baycol to a dose that was never used before. And the problem was, at that time, doctors were combining statins with a triglyceride-lowering drug called fibrates, which we'll speak of in a little while. but. Uh, there can be serious interactions between many statins and fibrates. And the worst interaction was this bay called cerevastatin with a fibrate called gemfibrazole. And it caused a really significant amount of myositis and rhabdomyolysis, which is dissolution of the muscles that causes renal failure and even death. So that is the only statin. People have forgotten it that was removed from the market, bay called cerevastatin. No other statin has ever shown that type of trouble, so no other statin ever had to be removed from the market. Uh, so statins kept the final one that came out was patavastatin, uh, uh, produced first in Japan. It's an interesting statin because of all the statins, it has the fewest drug-drug interactions. If you're in a polypharmacy world, sometimes you have to look at what statin you're, you're using that may do it. And so that came on the market. And was mostly used if people had muscle aches. People thought, hey, this is a, a statin less likely to give you muscle aches. And that was its niche use. Oh, boy. But I did forget before the patavastatin came out, the superstatin that we most people use nowadays came out. And it was resuvastatin or sold as Crestor. Still available. They're all generic now except patavastatin. Which, uh, so, and no doubt that'll be generic real soon, too. So the good thing about resuvastatin was the five milligram dose, the baby dose, lowers LDL cholesterol 38%. And as you go from five to 10 to 20 to 40, you get even higher, up to 50% with the higher doses of resuvastatin. Because statins can be divided into being lipophilic or hydrophilic. Hydrophilic statins have a tough time getting into cells. Lipophilic statins having lipid properties, boom cruise right through lipid cell membranes. Uh, so a resuvastatin is a hydrophilic statin. And the thought was, it gets into the liver because there's a specific receptor that pulls resuvastatin into the liver. So it was being sold as a hepatoselective statin, even though it's not, it gets into any cell. That differentiation of statins into lipophilic and hydrophilic has pretty much lost it was used a lot for marketing of various statins back then. And there was some theoretical science behind it. But it turns out at the end of the day with the seven statins we have now, the side effects are pretty identical. There are differences in drug-drug interactions if patients are in a 
polypharmacy world where you might prefer one statin over the other. But the lipophilicity or hydrophilicity has very little to do about it. That was also used as, oh my God, the lipophilic statins get into the brain a lot quicker than the hydrophilic statins. And you really don't want to oversuppress brain cholesterol synthesis. And, you know, so they use that as a marketing advantage for a while. But right now we know all statins get into the brain. All statins and some people can oversuppress cholesterol synthesis in the brain. Most do not. And uh, that issue of hydrophilicity, lipophilicity has pretty much become a non-factor. Although there still will be, if people are picking a favorite statin, they often use that as their excuse, but it doesn't stand to muster uh, anymore there. So that's pretty much the statin story. They all work. It has become the drug of choice. It's all generic. It's dirt cheap. It's a potent ApoB lowering drug. And it uh, upregulates LDL receptors by inhibiting hepatic synthesis. The liver just expresses more LDL receptors. The more you inhibit the synthesis, the more you'll clear LDL particles, the lower you'll make ApoB. And for a while, our goals were nowhere near what they were today. So statins got everybody to goal. With the much more aggressive goals we have nowadays with ApoB and LDL cholesterol, the majority of people with serious risk are going to need dual or triple lipid-lowering drugs to achieve the goal. So that's the statin class of drugs. There, I mean, I guess one more thing, because it's always talked about. Statins say they work. Of course, they lower ApoB, but they also have magical mystery side effects. Uh, not side effects, benefits. And they're referred to as pleiotropic benefits. They're not so much related to lowering ApoB, but somehow people believe statins get into cells and reduce inflammation and perhaps change other cellular alterations that are going on. It's complicated. There's a side synthesis pathway called where proteins get prenylated, prenylated proteins have a lot to do with cell signaling. So if statins do beneficial things in that direction, that might explain other reasons why they might reduce inflammation, uh, positively affect coagulation, and other attributes which are probably good. Is uh, That's been hypothesized since day one, and it's still a great hypothesis and virtually no high-level proof that pleiotrophic effects exist, although most people certainly believe they do. And so, fine, and I hope they do. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle 
that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Tom, just quickly before we move on to the next class of drugs here, I've got some questions on statins that I want to to, uh, get your view on. Um, We spoke yesterday about the Candutch russell pathway and the block pathway and the penultimate um, sort of uh, sterols just before cholesterol is produced. And we we zoomed in on desmosterol and we said we'd come back to this. And this often comes up when um, statins enter the conversation and we think about cognition. Um, Do you ever, in a patient who is on, say, a a high-dose statin, um, maybe someone that you think is at risk of dementia, say they have a copy or two of APOE4. Are you ever measuring desmosterol levels and um, using the results of that to determine whether that statin drug is appropriate for them or if you should move them to something else? So here's the story. So statins inhibit cholesterol synthesis in virtually any cell they can get into. Statins get into every cell in the body. And in most cells, that's irrelevant how much they lower cholesterol. You're hoping they lower the cholesterol synthesis a lot in the liver because that induces LDL receptors more than any other cell. But statins do cross the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain. So statins are going to inhibit cholesterol synthesis in the brain. And that is problematic because the brain only has one source of the very necessary amount of cholesterol it has, and it's de novo synthesis. No way the brain gets cholesterol. No lipoprotein in your plasma can crash the blood-brain barrier and say, hey, brain, here's some cholesterol for you. The brain has to make it. The good news is when brain makes a cholesterol molecule, its half-life is five years. Unlike plasma, half-life of cholesterol is two to three to four days because it's cleared and just resynthesized again. Brain, if it makes a cholesterol molecule, holds on to it for a long, long time. 
Most of the brain cholesterol is made in utero and in early infancy when the brain is virtually exploding in its growth and its functional properties and everything. And that cholesterol is formed and stays there a long time. And then over the ensuing years, there's still cholesterol production going on, but nowhere near as much as, say, in the liver or in peripheral organs. So we... If we had our druthers, we would wish a statin would never damn invade the brain, except as a maybe it's a good thing it does, and we'll see. But we don't want to suppress cholesterol synthesis in the brain. So yesterday we spoke how there's two pathways of cholesterol synthesis, the block, which ends in desmosterol, which becomes cholesterol, and then the Dutch russell which ends in lithosterol, which becomes cholesterol. So, but... We don't me measure cholesterol, cholesterol in the brain. We can't. Can we measure desmosterol in the brain? Well, we have some nice data now. People went in and they took cerebral spinal fluid and they measured desmosterol in the cerebral spinal fluid. And they saw whether it's high, normal, or low. And the first thing they did is, hey, does this matter to the brain whether desmosterol is high normal or low. And it turns out if it's high, there are neurologic uh, diseases that can occur. And if it's low, cognitive impairment occurs and there's a higher incidence of Alzheimer's disease. Now we know from autopsies of Alzheimer brains, they're depleted in cholesterol. So when now we're seeing, wait a minute, if desmosterol is low in the cerebral spinal fluid, that almost certainly indicates that that brain had hyposynthesis of cholesterol. Now, this study was not done in people on statins. This was just people, mm -hmm. and let's see, does desmosterol tell us anything about brain cholesterol? The next thing they did is they had the concentrations of desmosterol in cerebral spinal fluid. In the same patient at the same time, they measured desmosterol in the serum, and there was super high correlation. So that study shows, you know what, you can use serum desmosterol as a biomarker of brain cholesterol synthesis. It's also a marker of peripheral cellular uh, uh, production of cholesterol. So my theory, and, and this is all hypothetical, nobody has went out and done a randomized trial to prove this yet, is, look, we absolutely have to, in certainly the liver, and whatever other organ, if we use a statin, we're going to suppress cholesterol. But do we have to totally wipe out cholesterol synthesis? Is there a level that maybe it's good to suppress cholesterol synthesis to? And then when you hit that level, don't suppress it anymore. Now, you couldn't hurt a peripheral cell. You can't hurt the liver by oversuppressing cholesterol. But this study with low desmosterol in the cerebral spinal fluid linking it to impaired cognition and Alzheimer's disease is a worry that the brain is a different animal because its only source of cholesterol is synthesis. So there's probably a degree of suppression. That's it for the statin. Now, that would, so when we measure desmosterol in the serum now, we use it as a marker of brain cholesterol synthesis. I did tell you there's two pathways of cholesterol synthesis. The cell in the brain that makes the most cholesterol are called astrocytes. They make cholesterol. They make a lipoprotein in the brain. It's, it's an APOE lipoprotein. There's no APOB in the brain. And this APOE particle, which is mostly of the density of a high-density lipoprotein, fills with cholesterol in the astrocyte. The astrocyte secretes it. Now, here's another thing most people know. 
the uh, lipoproteins in the brain do not travel in the blood to get to other parts of the brain. They travel through the brain connective tissue, really interstitial fluid tissue. That's called the matrisome, M-A-T-R-I-S-O-M-E. So if an astrocyte secretes an ApoB particle full of cholesterol, it moves through the, astra, the, the interstitial fluid, but it doesn't have far to go until it bumps into a neuron. And the neuron has, guess what, an LDL receptor or an LDL receptor-related protein, which grabs that particle, pulls it into the neuron, and that's how the neuron gets its cholesterol. As a little aside, the neurons can also de novo synthesis cholesterol. It's a backup source, nowhere near as much as what the astrocyte provides. And interesting, the neuron uses the Candutch-Russell pathway through lithosterol. Now, I don't know if you measuring lithosterol tells us anything about the brain because nobody's ever went in and checked lithosterol in the cerebral spinal fluid and correlated it with Alzheimer's disease. I suspect since most of the brain cholesterol synthesis is desmosterol, that's the only marker. We and we have this interesting data relating serum and cerebral spinal fluid desmosterol to dementia and impaired cognition. So what uh, in my practice when I had it and practices I consult with now, if I suppress cholesterol synthesis, I do monitor closely desmosterol. Now, I know what the 20th percentile, the 50th percentile, the 80th percentile of desmosterol is. And when you start approaching the 20th percentile, I say, that's it. No more statin suppression of cholesterol synthesis. I don't want to suppress cholesterol synthesis anymore in the brain. If I need something else to lower ApoB, I will use an ApoB-lowering drug that does not do anything to synthesis of cholesterol in the brain. And that's every other ApoB-lowering drug that's on the market nowadays. So uh, that's the story with desmosterol. Is it a nice marker of brain health? The one thing, should therefore you never use a statin? No because there are at least 25, and it's a giant meta-analysis, but it's a meta-analysis of virtually every statin trial ever done where cognition was looked at as a tertiary or a distal endpoint in the study. And the meta-analysis shows that in general, statins reduce Alzheimer's disease. They don't cause it. Anybody who's written a statin knows there's a small number of people within a month are kind of come back and they have what we call brain fog. Uh, doc, uh, you gave me that statin. I'm just not thinking right. Not, I feel different. And I think the statin's affecting my brain. It's in the package insert of most statins that this could be a real minor side effect. Now, nobody's ever gone back and looked. And these people who complain of this immediate, wouldn't it be great if we had desmosterol levels on those people? Maybe that's a person, a statin really zoom, wipes out cholesterol synthesis. And could that be why their brains are not feeling so good? Who knows? That's just conjecture now. But I think there's enough data in this Alzheimer's relationship to desmo low desmosterol is worrisome enough for me. Desmosterol in the brain correlates with desmosterol in the plasma. So I think that's a sort of a break. That's enough statin for this person. And who, where you'd really maybe get worried is people who are prone to dementia, E4 carriers, or people with strong family histories of cognitive impairment or dementia. Maybe those are the people you really have to watch closer. And the others, maybe, who knows, This you don't have to watch the statin. You'll just trust the meta-analysis data on the statins that statins are going to prevent Alzheimer's disease. And the last thing is, how do if statins do prevent Alzheimer's disease, is it because they lower ApoB and prevent atherosclerotic uh, vascular disease in the brain? 
that would certainly prevent strokes and, you know, microstrokes, which certainly don't do wonders for your cognition. And, and But uh, people believe that that's where the pleiotropic effects of statins may come out. The statins get into the brain and through these accessory pathways do a lot of good things. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why statins may reduce Alzheimer's disease. So therefore, you'd be loath to say no statin for anybody because the brain is at risk. I think we got a real great tool to monitor if the brain is at risk, and that's the serum desmosterol mm. level. Is that serum desmosterol level something that most labs can test for? <laughs> of course not. Uh, so the, what... Uh, Yesteryear, 10 years ago, we had several major biomarker labs that were doing all these advanced tests. Most of them have bit the dust for a variety of reasons. Boston Heart Labs certainly offers you excellent sterile testing in their panel, but most doctors don't have a connection with that lab. But here is the good news. And I, I thought last night I promised to send you an email. I will, so you can post it. Uh, there's a company called Empowered DX. You can Google it. They offer a ton of direct consumer finger stick tests. So they'll send you a little card. You punch your finger, drop a blood on a card. You mail it back to them. And for $99, they will give you all four sterols, the two absorption and the two synthesis markers. Interesting. They send the blood to Boston Heart Lab, who does the analysis for you. So that's a really good lab. The guy who's in, runs sterols up there is one of the world authorities on sterols, Ernie Schaefer. So, but you can get it direct to consumer. But of course, you can't get coverage for it, but it's 99 bucks. Uh, I don't know what Boston charges you for it, but something tells me it's more than 99 bucks if you went up there and ordered it through a tube of blood you, a doctor sent to them or so. So people can get that. And uh, so if you're a doc who doesn't have that lab connection, uh, you might want to look into this periodic, check your desmosterol. I believe the Mayo Clinic, if anybody who gets blood through them still does sterile levels, you probably LabCorp and Quest does, but you probably have to make six phone calls to get those tests done. And as you can imagine, third-party payers are not going to be uh, giving you an easy time. Oh, we'll pay for that. Tom, if 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 someone was experiencing side effects with statins, or let's say perhaps they have a, a family history of dementia, they measure their desmosterol levels, and they're on the low side, can can someone achieve the same ApoB, the same sort of magnitude of ApoB lowering with other drugs of, of choice that also lower lipids? And thank God in the year 2023, the answer is easily. So in my, remember, statins were like the only drug until 2000. So for 15 years, it was statin or nothing. And you had to twist arms and get people to use statins. We didn't even understand the brain connection back then. So we really weren't worried about the brain at that point in time. But since then, where we are now, and we have we more much more information on cholesterol homeostasis in the brain. Yes. Yeah, so you can come, you start using azetamide combined with bempedoic acid. Now, this is cool too. We didn't talk about bempedoic acid yet, but it is another drug that inhibits cholesterol synthesis. But I think last night I told you it only inhibits synthesis in the liver. It's a pro-drug that can only get converted to the active drug in the liver. If bempedoic acid goes in your brain, it cannot stop brain cholesterol synthesis. But in the liver, it upregulates LDL receptors. You combine it with azetamide, you get the exact same ApoB reduction as a potent, potent statin. 
and very close to what a PCSK9 inhibitor can do. So there are other ways, solutions to lower ApoB with not worrying that I'm interfering with brain cholesterol synthesis. So that becomes an attractive option in people where you worry about the brain and cholesterol synthesis. And that's primarily the people you know are prone to dementia. Do we do we have any data on so if bempedoic acid, if what I'm hearing is it's a little bit more targeted, so it's it's really affecting the cholesterol synthesis in the liver as opposed to a more systemic sort of action like statins. Do we have any data in terms of just the other side effects of, that people often report with statins like muscle and weakness? Yeah, we do. And uh, this is good timing with this podcast because they just uh, presented last week their major cardiovascular outcome trial with bempedoic acid. So make a long story short, it significantly reduces clinical events. And the ApoB lowering, the LDL lowering is around 18% with monotherapy. Now, very interesting. That was a a trial of people who could not take statins because of statin muscle aches. So hell. They can't take a statin. Their muscles will get irritated or inflamed. So you certainly want to try lowering ApoB, LDL cholesterol in them. Statins did it, but you can't use them. And they reduce ApoB by upregulating LDL receptors via inhibition of synthesis. Let's take bempedoic acid, which only inhibits synthesis in the liver, decreases the hepatic pool of cholesterol. You grow LDL receptors. You remove ApoB particles. So it was a bempedoic acid monotherapy trial in statin intolerant people. Average age was 65 in this trial. Half of them were women, which is unusual. Most of these trials don't put a lot of women in them, but this one they did. And it worked. Now, you know, one of the statin issues was, God, if it goes into the muscles and inhibits cholesterol synthesis, people get these God darn myopathy side effects. Bempedoic acid, there were no myopathic side effects in the trial. There were two side effects that showed up. One we knew about ahead of time, and so it's easily looked at ahead of time and altered if need be, and one was a surprise. So it worked, but what was the price you could pay? We know bempedoic acid has the potential to minusculely elevate uric acid in the blood a little bit through inhibition of some of the uh, uh, uric acid uh, byproducts in the urine. It inhibits uric acid catabolism a little bit. So you would never, they instruct you, don't give bempedoic acid if the person has had gout previously. I would also worry if they had uric acid kidney stones. Most people who've had stones don't know what the heck type of stone they have. Most of them are not uric acid, but ureterolithiasis would be a little bit of a warning. Personally, I think you should check uric acid before you give anybody bempedoic acid. And if it's in the real high level, maybe you want to treat the uric acid and then bempedoic acid is not going to aggravate the uric acid. The FDA so far with bempedoic acid is not put, they put, they make you aware of the uric acid thing, but it's not a contraindication, but they warn you real caution if the patient has had gout before. So that we do about in a little tiny incidence of gout showed up in this major cardiovascular outcome trial, but that's easily taken care of. Even if it develops, we have great preventative drugs on recurrent gout and dropping uric acid. But the once a side effect that came up, there's no explanation for it. It might just be chance. But compared to the placebo, there was a 1% increase in cholelithiasis, gallstones. Who knows? Listen, 
Gallstones <laughs> occur in the biliary system. They get stored in the gallbladder. If you alter the mixture of bile acids and cholesterol in the biliary system, uh, you, you know, you can sometimes potentially have, there's been a minuscule signal of gallstones in some of the azetamide trials also. So listen, so you would want, you know, if I'm going to use benpidoic acid, I would certainly look, there's a real trivial incidence of perhaps gallstones. If you ever start getting upper abdominal pain, fever, please call me right away. Don't think it's just a typical bellyache and you could get that checked out very quickly. So that's it. Otherwise there were no side effects with the benpidoic acid. Uh, so it's a really clean drug, and it works only in the liver. If I heard correctly, it's so it's a, it's a sort of alternative to statins. It's a bit more targeted, but the magnitude of LDL lowering is a little bit less than some statins. Yes. So depending on the risk of the patient, you know, I want to make your ApoB 80, 60, 40. Uh, you know, if you only need a little drop to get to 80, benpidoic acid may well do it. So you could try benpidoic acid monotherapy. The company that produces benpidoic acid, Esperion, has also made a combination tablet where bene, uh, uh, benpidoic acid gets combined with azetamide in the same tablet. The benpidoic acid is called Nexlatol. The combination pill is Nexlozet in the United States. There's a likely different names in Europe. So uh, if ahead of time I knew I needed 40% reduction in ApoB, you'd be wise to use the combination pill. Well, you, you know, so the old fashioned doctors and, oh, well, well let's try one at a time. And, and look, you're nobody's with these type of lipid disorders is going to croak next week. So you do have time to see how a patient tolerates it. One of the issues with combination pills, if they come back in three weeks and say, this drug is disagreeing with me, you're not sure which of the ingredients might be causing the side effects. And so it's easier, hey, give you a month or two of drug one. If you tolerate that well, we didn't get where we got to go. Now we'll introduce drug two. So other than acute coronary syndrome, really super high risk people where you have to use the atomic bomb day one, I think it's wise to go a little bit slow. People often appreciate that too, and you'll get less phone calls. <laughs> okay, let's keep stepping through this timeline of the different drug classes that came onto the market. So you started with the bile acid sequestrants, then you went through a very detailed history of the statins. Um, I took us down a little bit of a, uh, a sidetrack there. Um, we diverged and, and spoke about benpidoic acid, which is... Uh, one of the newer ones, but it sort of made sense to cover there with desmosterol coming up. Um, where are we at? What's the, what's the next class of drugs we want to talk about? So we should, uh, of course, it came on the market just 2001, I believe, was the cholesterol absorption blocker, azetamide, that interferes with the function of that sterile influx transporter, neiman pix c one like one. So less cholesterol gets pulled into the enterocyte. That means there's less cholesterol to throw into a chylomicron or to efflux to an HDL particle. So you will deplete the amount of cholesterol that's coming from the gut to the liver. And then the liver says, oh my God, I've lost my intestinal supply. The liver upregulates more LDL receptors and you further clear more ApoB particles. It's certainly approved and there are comb combination tablets available where azetamide is combined with a statin also if you need more adjunctive ApoB lowering. 
The azetamibe has no side effects to warn you about. I mentioned there's uh, perhaps a minuscule risk of gallstones with that drug too. Uh, like I didn't mention it with statins, but normally when we use a systemic drug like a statin or uh, azetamibe, we follow liver function tests, the transaminases. Now the rules are, unless they triple, you don't have to stop any lipid modulating drug. If you have a pre-existing liver disease, these drugs are not contraindicated unless it's severe liver disease. So, but you keep an eye on that. A really tiny number of people, you'll see some escalation in the ALT and AST, but as long as it doesn't progress beyond threefold, you're more than fine to keep. The, and there's also a theory that these drugs would be one of the theories to prevent fatty liver down the road, although there's no studies supporting There's animal studies supporting it, but no human studies yet. So who knows? I think keeping lipids out of the liver is probably good to not cause fatty liver. So that's really all you have to a little nuance with both the statins and azetamibe. If you want to use azetamibe monotherapy block absorption, a small number of people will reflexly start hyperabsorbing cholesterol, which in part defeats the hypoabsorption. And likewise with statins, if you oversuppress synthesis, sometimes the intestine revs up absorption. So that's another reason to follow these sterile markers, because if they give you a statin, which inhibits synthesis markers, but all of a sudden your absorption markers are worse and you're not at ApoB goal, you know, azetamibe is a perfect add-on. Likewise, if you use azetamibe monotherapy, but the synthesis markers go up and you're still not at ApoB goal, add a statin to the azetamibe. So those are nuances to know about the, the, that two drug too. I, I, one last thing, because there I know there are lipidologists listening to this. Everybody thinks azetamide blocks cholesterol absorption from the gut lumen into the enterocyte. That neiman pick c one-like protein is also expressed at the hepato, hepatocyte biliary border. In other words, if the liver, for whatever reason, needs cholesterol, maybe you've prescribed a strong statin, the neiman pick reaches into the bile and pulls cholesterol from the bile back into the liver. So Zetia blocks the neiman pick c C1-like protein at both the intestinal interface and the hepatobiliary interface. It's a dual mechanism of action. The downstream effect, linking back to what you said earlier, is that you end up with less cholesterol in the liver and upregulation of the LDL receptor. It's that simple. And that's how you clear ApoB. And every ApoB particle you take out of plasma is one less that can crash your artery wall. So... Uh, it makes great sense. You just mentioned there um, measuring sterols. And I just have a, a quick sort of side question here about um, hyperabsorbers. So we spoke uh, yesterday about measuring cytosterol and camposterol, which if they're elevated, that can be a sign that you're a hyperabsorber. And you, and you emphasize that, look, if that's you – you're someone that wants to steer clear of these plant sterile supplements. They could be bad news for you. So my question is, if someone runs those tests and determines that they are a hyperabsorber, do they need to be worried at all about plant sterols that naturally occur in whole foods in their diet? 
you would have to virtually have no ABC G5 G8 function. Remember, that's the sterile export transporter in, in the gut, the enterocyte that pumps phytosterols from the enterocyte back into the gut lumen so it can be excreted. Now, if you're just on a vegan, a vegetarian diet, you are not overwhelming even the enterocytes with too many phytosterols. The people who overwhelm uh, the those cells with phytosterols are using two grams a day of phytosterol supplements. No vegan comes close to eating that many phytosterols. Uh, so it's not a worry. And we talked last night that if a vegan has high ApoB, which they could for other reasons, ezetimibe works nicely with them, even though they're not eating cholesterol. But ezetimibe is also a treatment for the rare conditions where people have extreme levels of phytosterols in their blood, the disease called phytosterolemia, which has a lot of down effects, even xanthomas performing people. And until Zeti was invented, there was like no good treatment for those people. So uh, they uh, were full of phytosterols. And that's how we know, at least above rather high levels, phytosterols cause harm. Uh, but there's plenty of data out there, even at less than super high levels, there's a lot of dysfunction. It's, a, it's basically a toxic molecule that should never be in the human body. We're not plants. Ask yourself, why did evolution give us an ABC G5G8 uh, phytosterol export transporter in both the liver, if it ever makes it that far, the liver puts it in the bile, or the enterocyte, which returns it to the gut. It was to keep phytosterols out of your body at any serious concentration. And the ABCG5G8 has much higher affinity for phytosterols than it does cholesterol. Just the opposite of the Neiman pick, which has higher affinity for cholesterol to pull it in than it does to pull phytosterols in. So there's a little bit of teology in here as to, well, boy, we are not supposed to have phytosterols in our body. Right. So be careful with the, the phytosterol supplements unless you've run a test. Yeah. So if you want to use them, measure phytosterols in your blood. See if you're, they're really getting into any serious level. And when we worry about them is when they cross the 80th percentile. In other words, you're worse than 80% of the human. It's not like two phytosterols get in your body. We're panicking. No, we're looking for serious concentrations of phytosterols. Okay. So that's ezetimibe. Should we move on to the PCSK9 inhibitors? Yeah, because that's... And probably where we're going to stop, because anything after that is in the pipeline and maybe or maybe not is we're ever going to see it. And that's for a future podcast if I'm still around. So, yes, the PCSK9 inhibitors are, are by far our most potent ApoB-lowering drug. Now, PCSK9 inhibitors inhibit this uh, protein. It's an enzyme called PCSK9. And the function of PCSK9, it's a hepatic-produced protein that regulates how long your LDL receptor lives. Remember I told you an LDL receptor pulls the particle in, it releases the particle, and then the LDL receptor recycles back to the surface of the liver and pulls in another ApoB particle. What determines how many recycling the LDL receptor can do is a catabolic enzyme that destroys P, uh, LDL receptors, and that's what PCSK9 does. So if PCSK9 is overproduced, your LDL receptors don't live very long. They make far fewer trips back and forth to the surface. 
And clearly, you're not going to be clearing many LDL particles if that's the occurrence. Genetically, again, I thought I mentioned it yesterday. If you have gain of function of the gene that controls PCSK9, you overproduce PCSK9, your LDL receptors have very short half-lives. Your ApoB is through the roof. It's a cause of familial hypercholesterolemia. Au contraire, if you have loss of function of the gene that controls PCSK9 production, you produce very little PCSK9. Your LDL receptors can make several more trips back and forth. You have dramatic clearance of ApoB. So statins and azetamide reduced and benpidoic acid reduce the pool of cholesterol in the liver, which upregulates the LDL receptors. PCSK9 inhibitors lets those LDL receptors live for a longer period of time, and you get dramatic lowering. Now, these the two clinical trials that exist, there's a newer one on the market that is still undergoing clinical trials, but the FDA let it come on the market because it is a PCSK9 inhibitor, and it lowers ApoB as efficaciously as the first two that came on the market, is the two outcome trials were done in the sickest of the sick. Acute coronary syndrome people who survived their heart attack had serious lipid abnormalities. They were always put on statins and then you, or statins and azetamide, but then you added the PCSK9 inhibitor down the road a few months if you didn't get to ApoB goal. Nowadays, the standard of care is you get admitted to a heart attack, you get admitted, you go on that drug day one with your statin. They don't wait anymore. Oh, let's give you six months to see how your LDL ApoB does. They want it down before you leave the hospital to the physiologic range. So now you have to extrapolate from that. All right, the outcome data with PCSK9 inhibitor is quite good. The sickest of the sick, it reduced MACE. Will it work in primary prevention? Almost certainly it would. It's, it's lowering ApoB through an LDL receptor, but they have no primary prevention trials with it. So the purists might say, I'm waiting for that. I'm only going to use it in the nightmares of the world. The rest of this, by the way, the FDA certainly has given you permission to use it in primary prevention in FH patients. So uh, if you can't get the LDLC goal, ApoB goal with your stat or stat plus azetamide, most third-party payers will allow you to use a PCSK9 in the high-risk people who at least have some degree of atherosclerosis going on. If you're a young person, you have no coronary artery disease, a zero coronary calcium, and you have LDL cholesterol ApoB elevated that is not in the familial hypercholesterol range, they're probably not going to approve and pay for your PCSK9 inhibitor. So again, wealthy patients can use it off-label, but the run-of-the-mill patient, the cost was $15,000 a year if you had to pay for it when it came out. It's down to $6,000 a year now. So it's money well spent, but $6,000 is $6,000 to different people. You know, So that's its hang-up, but you can really blow away ApoB. But, and it's sometimes even used nowadays as a standalone primary prevention drug although it's not approved for that. And there's no outcome data yet, but it lowers ApoB. How is it not going to work? And it lowers it through an LDL receptor mechanism. But that would be for a wealthy person. Primary prevention, yes, if they're FH, but not covered if they're not FH. So, but not, if you have a, a wealthy patient, you could certainly use it. And downside, almost none. It is an injectable drug. It has to be taken every two weeks. It comes in an auto pen subcutaneous, you stick it into 
wherever you got a little fat, you just touch touch a plunger and it self-injects. You don't have to depress the plunger. Takes maybe three seconds to administer the medicine. The needle is barely uh, visible. So uh, it's easy to use. And it's every two weeks because it's the drug hangs around for a while before it starts to fade. And you get dramatic reductions in ApoB, LDL cholesterol. To end the discussion, well, two things further. We've seen in all the trials with PCSK9 inhibitor, they also are the first drug that have ability to lower LP little a by 25 to 30%. Now listen, the new APO little a synthesis inhibitors are lowered by 80 to 90%, stop. But PCSK9 can reduce it a bit. And if I have LP little a, I'll take it on the assumption that it's good to lower LP little a. We don't have outcome data proving that just yet. So how does a PCSK9 inhibitor reduce LP little a? It actually, PCSK9 inhibits the synthesis of apoprotein little a in the liver. So if the liver makes less apo little a, that's fewer LP little a particles the liver can make. So uh, interesting. So it is used off-label now in people with LP little a, especially higher risk people. But the FDA and the third part, it's not approved no outcome data in LP little a patients. And obviously a third party payer is not going to pay for it in that instance, but it is being used like off label. I can tell you that. The last thing is there's a new PCSK9 in here. The first two are monoclonal antibodies. So PCSK9 is produced, the antibody binds to it and it kills the, the, the little enzyme there can't work. The newer drug is an siRNA, silencing RNA drug. And it's selectively delivered only to the liver through Galnac, which is a hepatic-specific carrier. So this drug, it's called Inclicerin, is the generic name, I-N-C-L-I-S-R-E-N. It goes right into the liver, and by acting on RNA, you block transcription, you reduce significantly the production of apoprotein little a, the monoclonal antibodies bind to it and inhibit the action of uh, PCSK9. This newer PCSK9 inhibitor inhibits the synthesis of it. So, and that's called Inclicerin. The brand name in the United States is Lecvio, L-E-Q-V-I-O. And here's the interesting thing about it. It stays in the liver for a real long time. So you take your first injection, you get a booster injection at three months, and then it's every six months thereafter. And your LDL stays just as low through that entire. So it's super drug on compliance. Uh, imagine that. You don't, and every two weeks, you don't have to self-inject. Now, the volume of injections a little bit more goes from 1 cc to 1.5. So unless you're a physician with an office, usually the third-party payer makes you go to an infusion center or an injection center that a nurse will come out and administer every six months your injection. Small price to pay. Those centers are all over the place, at least in the U.S. So, uh, uh, and I'll give a little personal, uh, since I'm going to tell it, it's not a HIPAA violation. I have been on a PCSK9 inhibitor since they basically first came on the market because I am a super statin intolerant patient. I also am quite intolerant of zetamibe. So I had no real lipid modulating drugs. For years, I was using fibrates and niacin for whatever good it did. I'm still here. Maybe they did something, but I do have known coronary disease with a very positive CAC with the normal arteriogram. So the disease is in the wall of my artery. 
But I, I've been on PCSK9 injectables every uh, two weeks for many, many years. My ApoB runs around 48, 49. I'm just the PCSK9 inhibitor all by itself. That's phenomenal. Interestingly, my third-party payer would never pay for it because although I had definite coronary disease, high LDL cholesterol, ApoB, I did not yet have a heart attack. So they didn't think I was sick enough. They wanted me to have my first heart attack. Then they would have covered it if I survived. But interesting, when Inclycerin came on the market, my internist I'm going to try and get you in glycerin. And they approved it right away. It's, just, it's a PCSK9 inhibitor. So I don't know. Maybe they get a good deal from the company that makes in glycerin or something. But uh, So I've had my first dose about two months ago. Next month, I get my three-month dose. And then it'll be six months after that. But it gets covered now. So that's nice. So this kind of makes me wonder. You mentioned before that statins are the, the kind of drug of choice is that just based on having more data to support their their use yes numerous numerous outcome trials and remember statins have been around now for 30 years so it's not only numerous trials it's decades of safety known the fda is not getting a ton of side effects reported there are still trials ongoing with statins and they're not seeing anything that we haven't mentioned already so super safe drugs tremendous outcome data secondary hypotheses that here's what else it might be doing. And the real reason they're the first line drug is they're pennies. Generic statins are almost given to you free by the third party payers. You know, you, um, some don't even have a copay if you use uh, a generic statin. So uh, I don't, azetamibe is now generic, but it's still priced higher than statins. Uh, so, but it's still not going to bankrupt anybody. But when you start getting to all these other still branded drugs, bempedoic acid, the PCSK9 inhibitors, you're going to pay for them. So no guideline is going to come out and say, put the world on PCSK9 inhibitors because it would bankrupt the uh, medical systems in most countries. Because that, if look, if I could have an apoB lowering drug, why wouldn't I just take a PCSK9 inhibitor and not worry at all? But it's the cost. Why is it that that statin seemed to slightly increase one's risk of type 2 diabetes? Well, there's many, they induce insulin resistance in certain people. Interesting, the data, the more and more they analyze this, uh, it seems to be they're most apt to induce insulin resistance if you're already got subclinical insulin resistance and you're on the way to being a type 2 diabetic. So maybe you have prediabetes or your glucose is 99. And when it's 100, you have prediabetes. They tend to be overweight patients with abdominal girth. And that's the one that a statin is most likely to escalate glucose above 100. Now you're pre-diabetic or above 126. Now you're diabetic. It doesn't make your sugar go to 340 and you're going to be in diabetic coma. Statins don't do that. You are monitoring everybody you prescribe a statin and you will look at the glucose escalation excavation. And if it goes high, we have many ways of reducing that with better lifestyle or a slew of anti-glycemic drugs that are widely used. And some of those have cardiovascular outcome data right now. So the ADA strongly recommends that all diabetics over the age of 40 be on a statin, almost regardless of what your LDL cholesterol and ApoB is. 
And they know that, hey, it's going to rig, screw up glucose in a few people. But the ADA has got six chapters on how to lower glucose if that goes <laughs> up too. So it's really not a worry. You, you, a doctor is aware of it. He will monitor that. Tragically, people go online and they read that if you take a statin, it's going to give you diabetes. Everybody who hears diabetes thinks they're going to be blind and on dialysis next week if they get diabetes, which is not the case. Easily manageable disease. So that is never a reason not to use a statin that you might develop diabetes. If it does happen, you could stop the statin and try something else, or you could <clears throat> take care of the diabetes with metformin or all the other GLP-1 receptor agonists, all the fabulous drugs we have nowadays to treat glycemic-related complications. Yeah, I came across a, a study, I can't remember who tweeted it, um, the other day that was speaking to the number of people in the USA who are not taking statins that should be or would qualify to based on their risk factors. And I think it was it was about 50% of people with established uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease were not taking them in this population of about 600,000 people. And one of the major reasons was for fear of side effects. Listen, and I retweeted that and I put this as a national tragedy and I blamed it on two people. One is patience. We discussed yesterday, you better be your own advocate if you have various diseases and you ought to do serious reading about diabetes and the morbidity mortality with it. And then you better do reading on the uh, drugs you're using it. But I think the real culprits are doctors either are ignorant or they don't want to get into hassle. Here, I'll give you a stand. And then they're going to, their patient's going to come in with six things out of their internet that why a statin's going to kill them. So doctors are shamefully nowhere near as aggressive on inducing lipid modulating therapy where the aid demands basically saying it's malpractice not to be on a statin if you're a diabetic or pre-diabetic. So it is a tragedy, but that is the reality of it. And uh, therefore, we're never going to wipe out atherosclerosis in the population anytime soon. Uh, my goodness. But uh, that's the reality we live in. The toughest thing is to convince a pe person nowadays to take a, a drug. And it's even worse after this COVID junk that went down for years. People are afraid of anything medicinal. They don't believe anything doctors say anymore through all the nitwit idiotic stuff that's on the internet, scaring them away from super proven drugs. I would bet in the history of the world, maybe only second antibiotics, statins have saved more lives in more people. And, and certainly where you're just looking at chronic diseases, not even close. And looking forward, uh, I mean, you mentioned that PCSK9 inhibitors just before, and then you spoke about um, Lecvio. Another uh, interesting kind of thing related to PCSK9 gene is I've read a few articles on gene therapy, looking at, at CRISPR to edit the PCSK9 gene. Is, is that something that you see could be another sort of effective therapeutic intervention here? Well, yes, it is. Now, look, so I sort of explained that if you have loss of function of PCSK9, if you were blessed and inherited genes that don't make PCSK9, then you're going to have very low ApoB, and there's virtually no coronary disease in those people, and they suffer no consequences of having lifelong extreme reductions of LDL cholesterol, 10 or 15 milligrams per deciliter. So now 
Verve is the name of the company that has induced this CRISPR therapy. It goes in, it's a one-time administration, and it goes in and it edits your PCSK9 gene in your nuclei of your cells, and you don't make PCSK9 anymore. You, it's impossible for you. So these are people, the day they get the injection, stop making PCSK9, their LDL metrics fall to borderline existent, and the theory is this is going to take out atherosclerosis. Now, and they've started injecting this in human beings. They had to go through cell cultures and animals and non-human primates and test it in all of those. And they didn't kill any monkeys or any little other mammals. And it seemed to be safe. So now it's given in clinical trials to people. Obviously, a person has to sign on to that. And, you know, there's always a worry with genetic therapies that, all right, we're taking out this horrific gene. Are there other consequences? But with this therapy, you're only taking out one gene. But does that gene control things that we don't know about it? There's been a lot of research on PCSK9 and no other related function that it seems to be modulating of any consequence has been found. So, yeah, that's where we are. My last thing on that, though, can you imagine pharma develops a drug? It's only got to be administered once in your life. What is the cost of it going to be? A million dollars per shot? I mean, if they were giving you lifelong whatever drug for a lifetime, they make a lot of money. So pricing that is going to be something. Yeah, that could cannibalize their sales of other lipid-lowering drugs. Oh, yeah. And you know, this is we're talking lipids today, but you know, the Alzheimer drugs that are out there that could easily bankrupt the country nowadays. And they have borderline efficacy, whereas this drug, the proof is really solid that it's going to be a miracle drug. But is the company, if the company realized they'll give it to every human who has an elevated ApoB, they could probably not charge very much for it and still do very well. But, you know, when it starts up, who's going to be the first hundred people that say, I'll take it? You know, so, yeah, it's uh, going to be an interesting thing to watch. Uh, it's a great company. The people running it are top experts in genetics and lipidology and cardiovascular disease. So I have great faith in Seth Catherson, who's uh, their CEO guy up there in Boston. So, How long do you think it will be until Verve have some outcome data from that? Well, look, coronary outcomes is always, you're looking at four to five years, but you know, you got to empower it. So it, and they have statisticians that figure out here's how many people you got to bring in. Here's what their baseline ApoB should be to start really high. And look, the PCSK9 inhibitors that we use now that only partially take out PCSK9 within two years, they were showing outcome benefit. So if you're totally eliminating, I would, and you're giving it to people with really high PCSK9, I would think it'd work pretty quickly. They would want safety data. So I don't know how many people there, you know, safety data, you need to give it to a hell of a lot of people, you know, so uh, they know what numbers. I'm not privileged to that or tell you what the studies are. So, but it, it would come quick, the results. The other interesting trial, or I believe there's trials, but one of them, Horizon, that's underway now looking at um, drugs that can lower LP little a. What can you tell us about the, the trials that are underway here and when we could expect some results? 
Oh, these are all, again, investigative drugs. Pelicarsin is the first one. It's an ASO drug that inhibits, through genes, the production of apoprotein little a very significantly. So they will practically normalize LP little a. Maybe the people who have LP little a in the stratosphere, 600, it won't be normal, but it'll be drastically reduced. So if LP little a is as dangerous as we think it is, that should be a very successful outcome trial. Maybe. Number two, they have to show that, well, we lowered apo little a. We didn't get any serious side effects because if there were side effects, they'd stop the trial and junk the drug and write it off as a loss. So, so far, I'm presuming they haven't seen anything like that. There's always the hope if it's the very drastic lowering of apo little a works fantastically, they may cross the number needed to treat soon and you can stop a trial prematurely. And the FDA would say, oh yeah, it's unethical to continue to trial and put people in a placebo group for this, you know? So uh, we'll see. Here's a theory that's out there. So remember, you're producing apo little a and it jumps on an LDL particle, which the liver has produced. And now that changes that LDL into an LP little a, which the liver secretes. So what if you stop production of apo little a, but you're still producing LDL particles and they just escape? So yeah, you're not, you don't have LP little a, but now you have increased LDL apo B. So could that like diminish? There'd be, hey, it's great to reduce apo little a, but if the Byproduct of that is you increase LDL ApoB, maybe that's not so good. That's why you have to do clinical trials to see is it going to work. Because remember, these drugs do nothing to ApoB per se. They're strictly Apo little a drugs. Uh, most of us believe that by stopping the formation of LP little a, yeah, you might get a few extra LDL particles, but you'll still have a, a, a benefit in outcomes. But listen, I... I've stopped betting on clinical trials. I've been wrong on a bunch of them in my career. So I'll wait. And, you know, I can be optimistic. I'm very optimistic, as I indicated on the new CETP inhibitor that's coming. But uh, we will wait <laughs> and see. Remember the first CETP inhibitor? We were doing somersaults, and they stopped it because it was killing people, torsetropib, So Yes. Well, I think we should touch on HDL here a little bit. And, and perhaps... Perhaps firstly, I'm not sure that we've we've kind of stated this in this series so far, but um, I'm certainly guilty of this in years gone by using this terminology of good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. And I, I hope, um, you know, I'll put my hand up. Um, I, I hope that now with greater appreciation that everyone would have for the lipid transport system that we understand that the cholesterol in a HDL is no different to the cholesterol in an LDL. What differentiates them is is the protein that is uh, encasing these uh, lipoproteins. So the kind of idea of good and bad cholesterol sort of doesn't make sense when you get your head around the physiology. Um, but that aside, people may still kind of associate or see HDL as the good part of the lipid system. And they might be wondering, Tom, can we take a drug that increases HDL particle number to lower our risk of this disease? Unfortunately not. We know that because we had a drug that increased HDL particle number and HDL cholesterol, and those were fibric acids. And in clinical trials, uh, they, they did not work. 
We had niacin, which drastically increased HDL cholesterol, did very little to HDL particle count, but it raised HDL cholesterol even higher than fibrates do, and it failed in three major CVOT, cardiovascular outcome trials. So we have those two examples, and we have the first three CETP inhibitors, which drastically, they raise HDL cholesterol by 100%. The first one failed because it had toxic side effects. The next one failed because although it raised HDL cholesterol, it did zero to ApoB, so it didn't work. The third one came along that seriously raised HDL cholesterol, uh, but actually lowered ApoB a little bit, but the company didn't see a signal of benefit, so they abandoned the trial. Many think if they let that go longer, it would have worked. The fourth CETP inhibitor, which lowered ApoB a little bit, actually succeeded in reducing events. It also raised HDL cholesterol 100%, but the little bit of benefit that came was attributed to the lowering of ApoB. The final, the fifth one that they're checking now is a drastic ApoB lowerer. So, uh, the hope is, and like all the other ones, it's going to raise HDL cholesterol in the stratosphere, but they believe it's going to be successful because it lowers ApoB sort of in the statin range. It's also going to be co-prescribed with azetamibe almost certainly too to get other benefits. All of the CTP inhibitors also reduce LP little a for whatever that's worth by inhibiting the synthesis of APO little a. So it's like PCSK9. So maybe that's going to be a benefit of it too. But uh, we have no proof that raising HDL cholesterol is good. And it's simple because in the old days, you were taught low HDL cholesterol is a terrible risk factor. You're going to die. And if you have high HDL cholesterol, you're protected. Hence, good cholesterol in the HDL, but you better have a lot of it. We now, those trials sunk that theory because the drugs that raise HDL did not afford cardioprotection. All right. So what is the most common cause of low HDL cholesterol? I actually did, you won't believe it, a two-hour webinar this afternoon to a group of physicians totally dedicated to HDLs. So I know a lot about, I've written tons of stuff on HDLs and lectured on it extensively. So anyway, HDL particles don't have ApoB. They're a separate family of lipoproteins, and their structural particle is apoprotein A1. And they have a couple of copies of ApoA1 per HDL particle. The only lipid that's on the inside of an HDL particle is cholesterol. There should be zero to minuscule triglycerides in an HDL particle. And that's so if cholesterol is the only thing they carry, HDL cholesterol is the cholesterol carried in all your HDLs. So what is the most common cause why HDL cholesterol goes down? Who do we see that in? Diabetics and people with high triglycerides. So when your trigs goes up, trigs are transferred out of the ApoB particles, the VLDLs and LDLs, into the HDLs. And the HDLs say, to make room for the trigs, you guys take my cholesterol. So the HDL loses its cholesterol and acquires triglyceride. If you take cholesterol out of HDL particles, your HDL cholesterol is going to go down. But where is that cholesterol now going? Into an ApoB particle. That might frighten you because ApoBs can go into the artery wall and dump it. HDLs cannot. All right. Now, hard to believe. We all know how many ApoB, VLDLs, and LDL particles we have. We also know how many HDL particles a person has. 
Whatever number of ApoB particles you have, and 90% of them are LDLs, you have 28 times more HDL particles than you have LDL particles. So it's a super duper massive, it is the king of lipoproteins floating in your bloodstream here now. But HDL cholesterol is usually lower than LDL cholesterol. How can that be? If you have 28 times more HDLs, how could they be carrying less cholesterol than your LDLs? Remember, the volume of a spear is the third power of the radius. So as particles get bigger, they can carry humongous numbers of lipid molecules. The average size HDL particle carries 45 molecules of cholesterol. The average LDL particle carries 2,500 molecules of cholesterol. So even though you have 28 times more HDLs, they carry so little cholesterol, it rarely exceeds LDL cholesterol. So that's why. But the reason HDL cholesterol will go down when trigs invade it, cholesterol goes out, you have triglyceride-rich HDLs, HDL cholesterol falls, and what is the most common colipid disturbance in people with low HDL cholesterol? It's high triglycerides, it's diabetics, it's insulin-resistant people, or people with genetic causes of hypertriglyceridemia. They have very low HDL cholesterol because their HDLs are not carrying cholesterol anymore. They're carrying triglycerides. When you have a triglyceride-rich HDL, it's subject to rapid lipolysis. The triglycerides get hydrolyzed, they're removed. Now you have an eensy-weensy HDL, which sort of explodes. ApoA1 breaks off, goes into the kidney where it gets catabolized and you pee away the amino acids. So triglycerides causes HDLs to carry less cholesterol molecules and it increases their rapid catabolism. So what does virtually everybody with high triglycerides and cardiovascular risk have? High ApoB. So when you see low HDL cholesterol on your lipid panel, Make sure if it's not done, the next day you go and get an ApoB test because the overwhelming vast majority of people you will see in clinical practice with low HDL cholesterol who are not already on a drug will have high ApoB. Ergo, the goal of therapy when you treat ApoB is to get ApoB to goal. And if you're not measuring ApoB, when HDL cholesterol is low, you get both LDLC and non-HDLC to goal. So that's what you really have to know about HDL cholesterol. I could give you all the nuances on what HDL does with its cholesterol, and maybe I'll spend a minute on that. But the worrisome bit about low HDL cholesterol is it's a warning to you, get your damn ApoB checked. And if it's high, do whatever you got to do, lifestyle or drugs to get ApoB down. If you're a diabetic, you need to be on a statin day one. Let me ask you one question about the mechanism here and we're kind of doubling back to our first episode together but i just want to clarify so these hdl particles they are less than 70 nanometers in size they must less be this small than the ldl right so they're very 15, very small five to 13 right. nanometers yeah so i i guess i say less than 70 because i think 70 is sort of that threshold oh, of where yeah. they can start so to they can get start in. to enter yeah. so they can get into the to the intima and this is my question um and i think it comes back to the to the protein that encases them but why are hdl particles not atherogenic or are they can they be and remember our treatsy day on the first podcast, ApoB binds to arterial wall proteoglycans like flies stick to fly paper. They're trapped. They get oxidized. They aggregate. 
the macrophage eats them. ApoA1 does not bind to arterial wall proteolytins. So if an HDL goes into the arterial wall, it can release any of the numerous proteins it carries. Its proteome might be cardioprotective, so that might be good. But the real job of the HDL is to go to these foam cells, which are macrophages that have ingested all the ApoB particles and their cholesterol, and to help efflux the cholesterol out of those macrophages, gathers extra cholesterol molecules, they can leave the arterial wall, go back into the plasma and bring that cholesterol somewhere else, but they've actually extracted cholesterol out of your arterial plaque. That, by the way, is given a name. It's called macrophage reverse cholesterol transport. And there is no doubt it's a cardioprotective function. This has been proven in cell culture studies and everything. But the amount of cholesterol that HDLs pull out of your arterial wall macrophages which is desirable, it's so small compared to all the cholesterol that's carried in your HDLs in plasma. You could pull all the cholesterol out of your artery wall and your serum HDL cholesterol would not even change. So you can't look at HDL cholesterol and say, hey, mine is pretty good. I'll bet my HDLs are pulling any calcium cholesterol out of my arterial wall. They might be, they might not be, but you can't look at HDL cholesterol and tell that. So let's just continue that story. The HDL went into the artery wall. It sucked out cholesterol. Now it's a bigger HDL, and now it's back in plasma. What are the options for that HDL particle to do with that cholesterol? One, it could just bring it back to the liver by itself. There's a receptor there that delipidates HDL. If an HDL did that, that is called direct reverse cholesterol transport. And that is one of the pathways. But here are the other pathways for HDL. It says, hey, there's an LDL. It's swimming right next to me. Yo, HDL, you take my cholesterol. In return, I'll take a little of your triglycerides. There's a lipid transfer protein, cholesterol ester transfer protein. Cholesterol leaves the HDL, goes into the LDL, trigs in the LDL, leave the LDL, go into the HDL. Oh my God, you've taken that good cholesterol and you've put it in an LDL. Does it instantly become bad? It's the same damn cholesterol molecule. But guess what? What happens to LDLs? They're cleared at the liver by LDL receptors. So when an HDL gives cholesterol to an LDL and the LDL is cleared at the liver by the LDL receptors, that is indirect reverse cholesterol transport. HDL was the first guy to gather the unwanted cholesterol, but he lateraled it to the LDL who went and scored the touchdown in the liver. So the main function of LDLs in human plaza is to gather cholesterol from HDLs and return it to the liver all by themselves. That is why we have LDL particles. LDL particles deliver very little, if any, cholesterol to any cell in your body, and certainly not the brain because they can't cross the blood-brain barrier. <clears throat> but are there other options for this HDL that's full of cholesterol now? And by the way, when the HDL gave its cholesterol to the LDL and got triglycerides, trigs get hydrolyzed, the HDL becomes small, and it goes back and gathers more cholesterol again. HDLs go from small to big, back to small, back to big. Many dynamic remodeling over their five, six-day half-life. All right. Option two for the big HDL particle. It's not, or option three, it's not going to bring it back to the liver. It's not going to give it to an LDL. Swim over to the gonads. Hey, gonads, you need any cholesterol to make your reproductive hormones? Here it is. 
the, those steroidogenic tissues, and they could do the same thing to the adrenal cortex. They produce a receptor called the scavenger receptor B1, which grabs the big HDL, delipidates cholesterol from it. And that's how the gonads in the adrenal cortex gets extra cholesterol apart from synthesis that they need to make those hormones. In general, LDLs deliver no cholesterol to those steroidogenic tissues. So that's an option for an HDL. There's another one. What is our cholesterol storage organ? What is our triglyceride storage organ? Adipocytes. Adipocytes store a tremendous amount of cholesterol. So big HDLs can go over to the adipocyte, which also expresses that scavenger receptor, pulls cholesterol ester out of the HDL and stores it. And now the HDL is little, it can go gather more cholesterol again. Why would an adipocyte store cholesterol? Suppose you go into adrenal shock tomorrow, you get run over by a car, you get bitten by a snake, you have some super infection, your body has to make 10 times more cortisone tomorrow than it did today. HDLs rush over to the adipocytes, they take back the cholesterol and they rush it right to the adrenal gland. So there's your homeostasis there and HDLs are a big part of uh, that, those type of crises uh, that go on. Geez, are there any other options for the HDL? There's one more. The HDL can go swim, travel through the blood right back to the small intestine. And there's a putative receptor that they haven't even named there yet that can grab the HDL, delipidate it. And then the enterocyte effluxes the cholesterol from an HDL that came into the enterocyte through ABCG5, G8 to the gut lumen, and it gets excreted in the stool. I like to inform clinicians, everybody talks about reverse cholesterol transport. And you can see, I've just given you 10 paths of reverse cholesterol transport. Uh, what is the final path? You have to poop cholesterol away. So cholesterol has to return to the gut and not be reabsorbed. It will be excreted fecally. Once it's in your stool, trust me, that cholesterol is bye-bye. It can't invade an artery anymore. So uh, fascinating. And if you want to know what's the best drug to induce reverse cholesterol transport, meaning increased fecal excretion of cholesterol, it's zetamibe, which prevents the intestine from absorbing cholesterol and makes the intestine excrete cholesterol fecally. Wow. <laughs> so I think that's enough of the HDL story. One, I guess HDLs, though, are the one lipoprotein, or at least the APOA1 on HDLs can cross the blood-brain barrier. Most of the HDLs that are in the brain are APOE-containing HDLs. There's no APOB in the brain. So virtually all of the brain lipoproteins are APOE. But if APOA1 comes in, some of the brain HDLs are APOA1 HDLs. Some are APOE plus APOA1 HDLs. So the brain has different type of HDL particles. And HDL particles bring cholesterol from astrocytes, give them to neurons, take unwanted cholesterol, bring them back. They do the cholesterol transportation in the brain. But if you have APOE4, that's a very dysfunctional HDL in the brain. So those brain HDLs, if the brain is making APOE4, the HDLs that transport cholesterol in the brain are bad. They're not functional and they can't better yet take tau and beta amyloid and get rid of it. But if APOA1 goes into the brain, you will have at least some APOA1 brain HDLs, which may protect against dementia. So there's hope that by getting APOA1 into the brain, that may be part of this, hey, how are we ever going to wipe out 
uh, Alzheimer's and other brain degenerative disease, Parkinson's disease. And this is the big hope with this new obesetropib, the CKP inhibitor that creates gigantic HDLs that carry multiple copies of ApoA1. They're of the hypothetical belief that ApoA1 will leave those particles, cross the blood-brain barrier, and develop into healthy HDLs in the brain in people with E4. And the CETB inhibitor may have the potential to be a drug that reduces uh, cognitive impairment in Alzheimer's disease. Hypothesis, we will see, but it's one of the lower endpoints they're looking at with this drug. And that's the mechanism, make your brain HDLs more functional in E4 people. Super interesting. Is there is there any effect of, of statins or any of these other lipid-lowering drugs on APOA1 uh, HDLs? Yeah, statins, some of their pleiotropic effects, they induce a nuclear transcription factor called PPAR-alpha, which is the stimulus for the liver and intestine to more make APOA1. So APOA1 can go up a little bit if you prescribe a statin. If you look at statins in HDL cholesterol, it goes up two, three maybe four milligrams per deciliter, but I've been speaking for three days telling you changes in HDL cholesterol tell you nothing. What really has to happen is we have to change the HDL proteome. That, and so far they've tagged over 150 proteins that have been associated with HDL particles that have all sorts of functions, some good, some bad. And we also have to start analyzing the HDL, what's called the lipidome. What lipid species are they carrying? Now, mostly it's cholesterol, but the other major lipid in HDLs is the phospholipids with the various fatty acids they carry. And phospholipids are everything with cell signaling. So it is believed the HDL lipidome and the HDL proteome hold the answers to average HDLs, super functional HDLs, or dysfunctional HDLs. And perhaps ultimately by doing proteomic analysis and lipidomic analysis, we'll have some sort of algorithm that says, oh my God, these are great HDLs or these are terrible HDLs. Uh, so those are many of the things they're looking at. We need HDL function tests. HDL cholesterol tells you nothing about HDL particle function and neither does HDL particle count. So one day we'll have better markers. Okay, so it sounds like there's a lot more to learn and explore. It's quite a topic, but HDLs are fascinating physiological biochemical machines, and uh, we're in our infancy. But I think HDLs may be the ultimate thing that comes to the rescue in the brain for us if we're ever going to take out chronic brain disease. It's probably going to be through HDLs because that's the only lipoprotein brains make for the most part. Talk to me briefly here about triglycerides. I know that there's been a number of different drugs that have been targeting triglycerides or attempted to target triglycerides directly, um, including some special type of omega-3s. Are, are, are elevated triglycerides inherently a problem when it comes to atherosclerosis or is it is it the knock-on effect that they have on ApoB? Ultimately, that's what it's going to be. But here's the situation. If you have a nightmare genetic problem with triglycerides. That means your triglyceride fasting is 500 to 1,000 and postprandially it's two, three, four, ten thousand. 10,000. Now that's, those are terrible issues. Uh, mostly the, those particles are so big, they get into the pancreas and uh, cause ischemia in the pancreas and acute pancreatitis is the worst manifestation of that. So if you ever see those people, 
you have to do whatever you can do to get trigs, keep them below a thousand fasting, close to 500. And the only way we could do that in the past was zero fat ingestion. They pretty much had to eat medium chain triglycerides, which are fatty acids that can get absorbed without going in a chylomicron. They're short chain fatty acids or medium chain. So, and that's a tough diet to put a kid on, no fat and uh, very tough. In the near future, we have spectacular drugs coming out that genetically are going to affect lipases and things like that. And you'll cure these people with these massive hypertriglycerides. Now, look, they're there, but that's not your everyday patient that walks into a doctor's office. So there's hope for them in the very near future uh, coming out. The -the run-of-the-mill person with hypertriglyceridemia that a doctor is going to see is the trig is going to be somewhere between 120 and 400 or so. Those are your insulin-resistant people. Those are your type 2 diabetics. That's virtually, or you're taking a drug that induces triglycerides. Some of the dermatological drugs, some of the antipsychotic drugs can do the same thing to you. So you have elevated triglycerides, but it's not in the stratosphere like those genetic triglyceride disorders. So that means if you have trigs that are 120 to 400, they start in your liver or your intestine. Your intestine puts those trigs into a chylomicron, which enters plasma, and your liver puts them into a VLDL particle, which secretes them in the plasma. And if you have a lot of triglycerides, the liver secretes very big VLDLs, which I told you yesterday was a signal of insulin resistance, big VLDLs. So what happens is these big triglyceride-rich chylos and VLDLs, they're floating the plasma, they're headed to muscle cells or adipocytes. So lipoprotein lipase can hydrolyze the triglycerides and bring them into those cells and the particles get smaller. But they don't have the most effective what we call lipolysis the ability of lipases to hydrolyze the triglycerides. There are other things on those particles that delay the lipolysis. And make a long story short, let's just talk about a a protein called APOC3. That prevents APOC2 on the particle from binding the lipoprotein lipase. You have super delayed catabolism of chylos and VLDLs. So your plasma triglycerides, of course, is going to be up a little bit. But now the plasma residence time of a chylo should be minutes, of a VLDL a few hours. Now they're going to float around your system for several hours, maybe all day long, because of the reduced lipolysis. Now, when you let these triglyceride-rich particles float around longer than they should, remember CETP, it swaps cholesterol for triglycerides. Those VLDLs and chylos start sending their trigs via CETP to HDLs and LDLs. So the LDLs and HDLs get over swamped with triglycerides to make room for the trigs. The LDLs and the HDLs had to send their cholesterol back to the VLDLs or the chylomicrons. Now, what happens, ultimately, the chylos and VLDLs do undergo lipolysis, just was delayed. Now you have VLDL and chylo remnants that are super cholesterol rich, and they go to the liver and dump cholesterol, which could cause fatty liver in the damn uh, liver if the liver. Now, when the liver gets all that cholesterol dumped by these remnants, what does it do? Doesn't make LDL receptors anymore. So what does that do to the LDLs that are floating around your body? 
it takes their plasma residence time of two days and makes it five days. When you let LDLs hang around for five days, what do you think it does to your LDL particle count, your ApoB level? It goes through the freaking roof because there's no more LDL receptors to clear your LDL particles. You have delayed clearance, markedly elevated uh, LDL. Now, what also happens, remember the LDL gave up its cholesterol and got triglycerides. It undergoes further lipolysis by hepatic lipase and turns into that small dense LDL Small LDLs, the shape of the ApoB changes. The LDL receptor doesn't recognize it anymore. So there is markedly delayed clearance with small LDL particles. Oh my God, what a mess triglycerides cause. They cause cholesterol-rich remnants, which drown the liver with cholesterol, shutting down LDL receptor production. The LDLs became small. Now there's even less reason they can be cleared. So LDL particle counts go through the roof. I've already told you the HDL that acquired the triglycerides undergoes the same loss of trigs, creating super small HDLs, which break apart. ApoA1 goes to the kidney and gets catabolized, and you lose your ApoA1. So Triggs causes high ApoB astronomical levels, and it drops your HDL particle concentration and HDL cholesterol to very low levels because you're peeing away your ApoA1. That is the perturbations of triglyceride. So now, for years, we had fibrates, which are pretty potent drugs at stopping triglyceride synthesis, improving triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, and interesting. I didn't tell you about the fibrate trials. The first two came right after those bile acid sequestration trials in the mid-1980s before statins. One was called the Helsinki Heart Trial, and the other was called the VA HIT Trial done in the United States in veteran hospitals. And they used a single fibrate monotherapy. There were no statins available back then. Gemfibrazole, and both, one was a primary prevention trial, one was secondary. They both reduced MACE. Gemfibrazole worked. Now, gemfibrazole does, lowers ApoB a little bit, but it worked. It lowers non-HDL cholesterol a lot, so it worked. It's basically getting rid of the remnants. It raised HDL cholesterol. That had nothing to do with its benefit. The HDL cholesterol rise was 10%, not a lot. But what happened? Now, yay, we got fibrate data. Statins hit the market. And nobody ever used the fibrate. Everybody jumped on the statin bandwagon because we were all brainwashed that LDL, LDL, LDL is what you got to lower. So fibrates never got a chance. So once statins work, we said, all right, but there are still people getting heart attacks with statins. Let's combine gemfibrazole to the statin. And wow, we'll not only lower ApoB, we'll lower triglycerides. And all they got was serious drug-drug interactions because gemfibrazole drastically slows the catabolism of most statins. Statin levels go through the roof. You get myositis and muscle aches. So they're contraindicated to use one another. Along came phenofibrate, a next generation fibrate, which wasn't so adverse with the drug-drug interactions, although the FDA still gave you bad warnings about it. And so the natural thing was let's combine statins with phenofibrate. Forget gemfibrazole. Phenofibrate had no outcome data by itself, but it's thought now in a statin world, if we combine it, it'll work. And it didn't. <laughs> so goodbye, fibrate. Even though the fibrates significantly raise tri lower triglycerides, uh, they're not really helping the statin lower ApoB any more than it did. <clears throat> so that's the reason they didn't work. 
And that's more proof that lowering triglycerides, if you don't lower ApoB with it, is meaningless as far as cardiovascular risk reduction is concerned. And subsequent trials have proved that. The last thing I'll say about triglycerides, the, along came the omega-3 fatty acids, which if used in pharmacologic doses can seriously lower triglycerides. So they are usable therapies in these people with triglycerides of 1,000, 1,200, 800. You want to go on four grams of EPA or four grams of EPA DHA because it'll at least prevent, lower the triglycerides where you should not get pancreatitis, you know. So they're useful and they're often combined with fibrates in that horrific condition. But how about if we took people with trigs, uh, you know, 120, 130 to 400 and we give them omega-3 fatty acids. And two trials were designed almost identical. They enrolled people with triglycerides above either 130 or 150 who were already on statins or azetamide. So their LDL cholesterol was well controlled, but their triglycerides were still a little bit high. Most of these were high-risk people. You can imagine many were diabetics, pre-diabetics, insulin-resistant people with low-grade coronary artery disease. Let's see what they did. So two trials. One was EPA only, eicosapentaenoic acid versus placebo. And the other was EPA plus DHA, docosahexaenoic acid and EPA, two of the omega-3 fatty acids. They're pretty much equal drugs at lowering triglycerides. Interesting enough, the EPA trial called Reduce It. And remember, all of the ApoB was aggressively treated. And these drugs don't lower ApoB anyway, the omega-3s. They lower triglycerides. And maybe they have other manifestations. EPA added to aggressively treated statinized patients reduced residual risk with a significantly statistically uh, positive p-value. Wow. Outcome data, if you add four grams of EPA uh, to your statin azetamide therapy in these high-risk people. The other trial was called STRENGTH. It was EPA plus DHA, lower triglycerides, no event reduction. It was a null trial. So now what does that mean? DHA is harmful? If you add it to EPA, DHA is required for the brain. It's the most common omega-3 in the brain. You don't want to make anybody DHA deficient. So now we have a dilemma. Well, if you're evidence-based and you have high-risk people that you've gotten LDLC and ApoB to goal, you should give them four grams of uh, EPA. How did it work? They have no freaking clue. It lowered triglyceride, but that was not related to the residual risk reduction. They have studied every biomarker in the world so far to figure out what did EPA did that is good, and they found nothing except that it works. So the guidelines now have said to reduce residual risk in people who have LDLC, ApoB well controlled, if they're insulin resistant, diabetics, and their trigs are above 137 or 150, it's appropriate to add EPA, even though we have no clue how it works. There's a positive outcome trial. And yet, you sh there's no guideline telling you to add EPA DHA because it failed in its outcome trial. Post hoc analysis showed us one thing. They sort of found out who in the reduce it trial with EPA were successful. At baseline, they checked their EPA levels. And if it was super low and we gave that person EPA, it worked. 
if their baseline EPA level was high, it didn't work. They're, so maybe we got to start measuring omega-3 fatty acids in the blood a, little more, a bit more carefully. And in higher-risk people, if omega-3 fatty acids are low, you certainly want to give them EPA. The danger is, what about your E4 patients? Most preventative neurologists think you have to drown their brains with DHA. So they're very loath to not co-prescribe DHA with EPA, yet the strength trial was not successful. But at least in the E4 patients, I also would be loath not to give them EPA plus DHA. Also, perhaps you could measure baseline EPA and DHA levels, and if they're good, because maybe naturally they eat a lot of fish or something, then do you have to substitute DHA? If you're an E4, most of the neurologists I know are substituting D, making sure one of your supplements has DHA in it. So that's your dilemma with triglycerides and how to reduce them. It'll be interesting to see if there's any future studies on, on omega-3s that helps clarify some of that. I don't think you're going to see them. What they should do now is do a head-to-head trial of EPA versus EPA DHA. There was some noise that in the reduced trial where EPA was good, the placebo they gave bids. So the placebo is making people worse, which makes your drug look better. Controversy. Strength used a different, uh, pretty much an inert placebo. So uh, did EPA really work or was it they got help from a bad placebo? Uh, it's always going to be there until somebody does another trial. You know how much these trials cost. It's not coming. So just to kind of close the the loop there on um, on triglycerides, there is this this idea, and this kind of brings us back to that whole um, lean mass hyperresponder type um, framework that gets discussed online. And I know that we've already gone into detail, but I just want to to make a point of bringing this up here. Um, there is this idea out there that for if we consider two scenarios where ApoB is the same in person A and B, but in person A, they have high triglycerides and low HDL, and in person B, they have normal triglycerides and normal HDL or even high HDL, that person B is at lower risk of cardiovascular disease despite ApoB being the same. Well, that's a great hypothesis. Prove it to me with a clinical trial. And no epidemiologic data would support that. And certainly clinical trial data wouldn't support that. So uh, you go round up those two populations and do what you want to do. You can speculate that that matters. From what I just told you, changes in triglyceride, changes in HDL cholesterol, although they can be used to help predict risk, Altering them has nothing to do with beneficial outcomes unless you lower ApoB in the same process. So if you somehow lower trigs and raise HDL cholesterol, first of all, I believe you would have to lower ApoB because the drugs that do that do lower ApoB. So it's a nonsense hypothetical. And if somebody believes that, you go round up 10,000 people that meet that type of entry criteria and do your study. It ain't going to happen. We, and first of all, is it ethical to give people a diet that sends the number one causal risk factor for atherogenesis through the roof as the ketogenic diet does to so many people? I don't think it could pass an ethics board. Oh, you're going to put them on a diet that puts you into what's called a malignant ApoB level associated with FH? 
I'm sorry, that's not ethical. We can't let you do that to a patient. So it's never going to happen. There's, you know, you can theorize there's virtually no epidemiologic or clinical trial or genetic trials that support their belief. So if you are on the ketogenic diet, and not all of them get a hyper hyper beta lipoproteinemia, many do not. So great. But if you're one who does and you say, I'm going to live with it. I did a coronary calcium and it's zero. It's zero today. You want to live many decades. Good luck to you on that. That is playing Russian roulette. You know, you might have a gun with 20. Would any of us take a gun that has 20 chambers in it and put one bullet in it? So 19 chambers and you would put that to your head and pull the trigger. So that's about the odds of, yeah, I have a high ApoB. I'm going to ignore it. Maybe you get away with it, but the literature has said you won't, but there's always exceptions, but I wouldn't play that Russian roulette game. So That's my answer to them. And it's an unethical trial. It's never going to happen. So they can theorize about that. And look, all these familial hypercholesterolemics have skyrocketing ApoB. Most of them do not have high triglycerides or low HDL cholesterol, and they have a horrific incidence of coronary artery disease, whether it's monogenic where you can identify the gene defect or whether it's polygenic and you can't identify the gene. At above certain thresholds, ApoB kills. There's been many takeaways from this series, and... um... I think that's one of the main points that you've kind of drilled home is if you can get your ApoB level measured, I'm conscious of, of leaving people with something here that they can grab a hold of and can be their kind of North star. Can you just remind everyone from a, a primary prevention point of view and a secondary prevention point of view, what are the kind of ballpark ApoB levels we want to see? First of all, measure LP little a, so you can dismiss that or worry about it. Get that out the way. One time test. Then you get your lipid panel. You look at two, three things. Is my triglyceride above 500? Then you have a genetic triglyceride issue. Seek out a lipidologist for care for that. Most run-of-the-mill doctors can't handle that properly. All right, but your trigs is not over 500. So, you know, if it's between 150 and 500, you ought to worry about it a little bit. But the two things that determine your future and your cardiovascular outcomes, if you're not getting ApoB, is your LDL cholesterol level, but better yet would be that non-HDL cholesterol level. And remind your viewers that that is a simple equation. You take total cholesterol, you subtract from it HDL cholesterol. That is the cholesterol that is not in your HDLs. It's your ApoB cholesterol. If ApoB cholesterol is up, the odds are good. Your ApoB is up. So those are the poor men's ApoB. And if you happen to see low HDL cholesterol, whether the triglycerides are up or not, just assume you have high ApoB. And look, if your HDL cholesterol is low, your non-HDL cholesterol is going to be high because you're subtracting a smaller number from your total cholesterol. So it all fits in. And, And so that's step one in getting risk. And if you have serious perturbations of that, you should talk to your doctor. If any lipid concentrations are abnormal and your doctor tells you not to worry about it, find another doctor, ASAP. If you have serious abnormalities of any of those uh, uh, lipids that I just mentioned, go to the American Board of Clinical Lipidology 
and find a lipidologist in your area, a person trained to truly understand lipids and manage lipids. It's the number one cause of death. Don't ignore lipid concentrations. Don't ignore subtle, subtle hypertension. Do not smoke. Those are the three ways to eliminate vascular disease, strokes, heart attacks, and all the other junk that follows them that you never want to have. Very so preventable. And we have so many safe and easy to use drugs. We don't even have these old drugs that had more side effects than the modern drugs are so safe, so easy to use. But don't run quickly if the doctor tells you you're young, don't worry about your lipids, or you're a woman, don't worry about your lipids, only men get heart attacks. Rush ASAP out of that office. We might put some information in the show notes around target levels for LP little a and APOB and a few of those things. Um, Tom, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate this. And and I guess going full circle here, I, I shared a story in our first episode uh, with you about my dad and and the heart attack that he experienced. And uh, you said something, to, you know, to to me uh, after I shared that that. You know, I could have been all alone with my father dead next to me and how that would have affected my life. It's a, it, it is a scary thought and something that I actually had never really thought about. I never stopped to think about what my life would have been like had that day ended differently. So um, all that to say that it's a great reminder of just how uh, important the work you're doing is. So it goes without saying that I'm I'm super grateful to have had this opportunity to to spend some time with you and and share what is very crucial information with people. So thank you for that, and uh, you're certainly welcome back anytime. Well, look, it's been a distinct pleasure. As you can imagine, I've done a hell of a lot of interviews and podcasts, and I've enjoyed this one as much as I did. Uh, almost six hours with my buddy, Peter Atia, and we did this type of thing. And uh, that was good, but that was 2018. So this is just as serious as that discussion with him, but it's more updated because things have changed since 2018. So those are my two favorite podcasts of all time. So I can't wait to, even when it comes out, I'm mad enough to just listen to it because I like to hear it differently <laughs> than me just sitting here talking now. So I enjoy it. But it's been a real pleasure. Uh, and I'd happily come back as we get into other things. Or uh, Although this is a super in-depth discussion and understanding of lipids, there's so much more to tell. It's a, quite a story. So uh, sooner or later, you'll want to travel back. And like anything else, the real purpose in doing this, and it's why you do it too, viewers listen to this stuff. I always say, believe nothing Dayspring says, assume he's an idiot or assume you better know what he knows. And that means self-education. So pick a topic or two, go do your own reading on it, ask other people and see. But like I said, he didn't pick me out of the phone book. I've spent a lot of time in the world of lipids, so I do have some credentials here. So I, I hope I've taken the complexities of lipidology, and it can be super complex, and made it a little more fun to understand what all our little particles are doing and what we have to do to keep them doing the right things. So it's been a total joy, it's total joy. Mm. Yeah, you've you've certainly achieved that, and I'll take you up on that offer. We'll we'll definitely get you back sometime. 
Very good. And yeah, I'm sorry to give you nightmares about your father, but the, you're the best example of why people have to treat cardiovascular risk factors. I, I'm no psychologist, but I would think if you lost your dad in the middle of the night and you got nobody to call, you're, you would have had serious psychological problems your whole damn life. What would you have done? Sat there till somebody drove by you? Drag your dad through the wilderness there? You probably knew how to drive as a young Australian kid, so you, you could have drove your dead father back. Uh, that uh, it's, it's just a terrible thought. Yeah. When you started mm-hmm. off that story, but it, it made this whole podcast worthwhile because that shouldn't happen, that type of stuff, to anybody who's getting evaluated earlier in life. Mm. Yeah, it shouldn't. Okay, Tom, thanks a lot. All right, my really friend. Really appreciate this. Talk and, soon. And I'll, uh, yes. Good night, everybody. We'll, we'll, we'll do this day, again. everybody, Good wherever night. you're listening to this, too. There we go, friends. Thank you for showing up and the effort you're making to take better control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again next week for another episode.